I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word today to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. The title of our message is, A Call to Love. A Call to Love. And if you will, go ahead and turn your attention to that text of God's Word, and we'll read that, um, and then uh, ask God's blessing on our time together. Beginning in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, our prayer today is simply this, that we would learn your word and then that we would do your word. Father, help us not to be hearers only, but help us to put into practice what your word says by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Now we're in the middle of walking through the book of first Thessalonians during our time in the word on Sundays. Uh, But I want to step away from that letter of Paul's today uh, to address something that really has has been on my heart for a few weeks. But while we're going to step away to another one of the Apostle Paul's letters, um, I I do think that this what we're going to look at today will serve as a foundation, a good foundation for where we're headed in the next few weeks, Lord willing, in the book of First Thessalonians church. Our mission demands that we love one another well. Our mission demands that we love one another well. We have a king. His name is Jesus, and he has commanded us. He's given us a mission that we go and make disciples of all nations. And one aspect of making a disciple is living as a disciple. And King Jesus said the way the world would know that we are his disciples is through the love that we have for one another. You can read about that in John chapter 13, verse 35. Our current circumstances have provided us with a unique opportunity to love one another and and in that way participate in the mission of God. But at the same time, our current circumstances that we're living in right now have provided an opportunity for the deceiver to lead us away from this opportunity, this opportunity to love one another. The virus that has upended so much of the normalcy in our lives and has brought with it a whole host of opinions concerning um, how to respond, it it, it has created this incredible opportunity. But if, if I were to poll our church family, I'm confident that we would not all have the same opinions regarding the virus, nor the appropriate response to it. As we weigh all the different options concerning the virus and how we're to we should respond to it as individuals, as as families, as a church. Um, and we could go go on from there. There there's countless different thoughts and opinions concerning the right course of action. And sometimes I have various thoughts and opinions just in my own mind. And just so you know, there's no chapter and no particular verse in the Bible that sets out perfectly clear guidelines for how we should respond in this situation. And and it really, this is a recipe for disaster if we're not careful. But at the same time, it's also a recipe 
for a beautiful display of the gospel if we are committed more to Jesus than to our opinions during this time. This unique opportunity we have arises from a a clear command in Scripture that transcends our individual opinions regarding this current crisis. Even though God's Word does not give us a a crystal clear uh, guideline or set of guidelines on how to respond to a virus, such as how to social distance in a church setting or when you should wear a mask and when you shouldn't wear a mask, Uh, The Bible doesn't speak directly to those issues, but the Bible is crystal clear concerning how we are to respond to one another, regardless of the circumstance. Over and over in Scripture, we are commanded to love one another as believers in Christ. Coronavirus or no coronavirus, we are on a mission as followers of Jesus, and our mission demands that we love one another well. But I've got two concerns. Concern number one is this. That our definition of love is often skewed by the world's definition of love. Our definition of love that we operate off of is often skewed or twisted by the world's definition of love. The world says love is about a feeling of happiness concerning my relationship with another person. Which, when you follow that out, it it really ends up uh, with that definition of love being focused on self instead of focused on Others, It becomes a self-centered view of love rather than an others-centered view of love. And that's not what God means by love. We may think we are practicing love, but it might not be love as God defines love. But then there's a second concern that I have, and it's this, that our practice of love is often, uh, is often hindered by our sinful desires. Our practice of love is often hindered by our sinful desires. So, so we, may, we may know the right definition of love, God's definition of love. We may know how to love and, and how God intends for us to love, but we may not always love that way. We may know the right what thing to do, but we may not always do it. Even as Christians, we still battle the desires of the flesh. Let me just take you real quick to the book of James. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we find these words. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Wrong desires, these these sinful desires leading to a lack of love towards others. In other words, what James is saying is we need help. (laughs) We need help if we're going to love the right way. We need our minds to understand God's definition of love. And we need help battling against sinful desires so we can practice that right definition of love. So I want us to walk through this beautiful to read, but hard to put into practice, love passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Really, all of chapter 13 is is a a call to love. Uh, but, but I just want to look at these four verses where Paul describes what love is. The context of this wedding, um, it, uh, excuse me, of this passage is not a wedding. We often associate this passage with a wedding because it's often read at weddings. And in fact, the context of this passage is uh, how Christians are to treat one another in the body of Christ. Now, it's fine to take this passage and apply it to the relationship between a husband and a wife, especially if those two are believers. 
Right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying this is how a man and a wife should uh, a husband and a wife should love one another. But but really, this passage is about how we as Christians are to treat one another in the body of Christ. Now, this passage draws our attention to three things that we need. I want to share those three things with you. The first is this. We need to adopt an accurate description of love. We need to adopt an accurate description of love. Remember, I said that we often have a skewed view of love. Even if you have this passage hanging on a wall in your house, which probably many people do, even if you have this passage memorized, I think it would serve us well to look at each description given of love in this passage. As we look at each description, though, I don't want you just to look at the text, but I want you to examine the way that you love one another in light of what God's word says about the way that we are to love one another. The first thing we see about love is this. Love is patient. Love is patient. The word is always used in the Bible to refer to being patient with with people. It's about our relationships with one another. To be patient in this context is to be slow to anger. Or or, or to use another word that we don't often use much anymore is is, um, the word long-suffering. One writer said this, long-suffering is that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. Another writer said that this word is used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself and who yet will not do it. We have lots of opportunities to exercise patience in the body of Christ. Perhaps it's patience with a believer who seems to be growing spiritually at a snail's pace. Perhaps it's patience with a believer who wrongs us and we are waiting for an apology. Perhaps it's patience with a brother or sister in Christ who seems to always think differently than we do about the right course of action. Perhaps it's patience with that person uh, whose personality just seems to always clash with our personality and always seems to get on our nerves. Patience with others can come in all different shapes and sizes, but however it looks, it is an essential aspect of what it means to love one another. Next in this passage, we see that love is kind. Love is kind. Did you know that you can think rightly about a situation, but act unkindly in carrying out what you think is right? You see, I might know that something my child is doing wrong, and it might be right for me to tell my child to stop. But if I scream angrily at her to stop, then I haven't really loved her in that moment. It might have been right for me to tell her to stop, but the way I said it wasn't kind. When a brother or sister in Christ has sinned against us, especially if it's becoming a pattern of sin, the loving thing to do is confront them in order to be used by God as an instrument in his hands to bring that person to a place of of repentance and reconciliation with God. However, if I don't speak with kind and gentle words, then my confrontation cannot be described as loving. Or I could teach God's word like I'm doing now, or maybe it would be like in a, in a small group Sunday school class or, or even with my children at home. I could teach God's word, but if I do so in a harsh, condemning manner instead of with kindness, then I'm not teaching in love. I'm not acting with, with kindness. The next thing, the next description of love we see here is that love does not envy. Love does not envy. A very simple definition of envy, envy is to want what someone else has. And we've all done that. But we, we often don't think about envy as being unloving. We don't think about it that way because my envy of someone else's possession seems like an issue between me and that possession, not between me and the person who owns that possession. So how can it be unloving? What does it have to do with the person who owns it? 
Well, really, deep down, envy is more than just wanting what someone else has. Envy is wishing that the other person didn't have what he has because you don't have what he has. It's not just wishing that thing for yourself. It's wishing it away from that other person. And that quickly morphs into evil thoughts toward the person himself or herself. And so, envy is not a characteristic of true love. The next thing that Paul describes love as is, is not boasting. Love does not boast. To boast is to brag about one's own accomplishments. If I'm more concerned that other people know the good I have done than just simply doing the good thing, then I'm going to either miss opportunities to care for them because I'm too busy making sure they notice what I've done, or I will care for them only to boast and brag about caring for them, which proves I wasn't really caring for them out of love, but out of a selfish motivation. We could say more about that, but you know what it means to boast and brag. The next thing that Paul describes love as is not being arrogant. Love is not arrogant. And arrogance is just the attitude behind the boasting that we just talked about. And while it can sometimes be hidden, most people can sniff out arrogance in someone else pretty easily. And, I mean, if I were to ask you, you would say that you don't really like being around somebody who's arrogant. I I don't either. We don't like to be around someone who thinks only of me, myself, and I. If that person tries to do something nice for you, you could hardly describe it as an act of love if you know it's coming from a desire simply to be seen or recognized or applauded. Love is not arrogant. But next in this passage, we see that love is not rude. Love is not rude. Again, I don't think you need much explanation of this. We've all been rude to someone else at some point or another, and Probably we've all experienced someone being rude to us at one point or another. But unfortunately, Christians, we're, we're not immune from the temptation to be rude even to one another. Walking into a church service and telling someone, you're sitting in my seat. Well, that's obviously, at least to everyone sitting around there listening, that's obviously rude. But of course, that would never happen in a church setting. Except that it does. Talking about someone behind their backs is rude. Avoiding a brother or sister in Christ because he or she dresses differently than you or has a different skin color than you or or comes from a different socioeconomic class than you. That's rude. That's rude. And there's no place in God's definition of love for rudeness, for being rude. The next thing that Paul describes love as is is not insisting on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Uh, Insisting on your own way means means plowing ahead with your opinion rather than pausing to consider how it's going to affect someone else or or what someone else is thinking about the situation. But real love, on the other hand, cares about the other person's thoughts and opinions. Real love asks, what do you think we should do before saying This is what we're going to do. Real love says, I'll lay down my rights for the good of another. Paul addressed this topic of of laying down one's rights for the the good of another in uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and and chapter 9. You can go read about that. Real love says, I could just kind of summarize it this way. Real love says, I have every right to do this or say that, but I'm not going to do it. Or say it because it might 
come across as hurtful or hateful, or it might cause my brother or sister to stumble into sin. It might not be loving towards them. Not insisting on our own way goes against every fiber of our sinful flesh, but it is contrary to true love. Next, Paul says that love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. To be irritable means you're easily irritated. I've heard people say before, well, I've just got a short fuse. As if they can't help their temper because that's just the way that they were made. Be careful with that because that's accusing God of your own sinfulness. It's true that some people seem more naturally prone to getting angry very quickly But we all have certain sins that we struggle with more than others that doesn't give us us an excuse to to fall into that sin. Having a short fuse is not something others will just have to deal with. Having a short fuse doesn't mean forcing those around you to always tread lightly. Having a short fuse means you have a love problem and you need God's grace to help you grow to learn to lengthen that fuse so that you can become a better lover of others. Don't try to get others to change to accommodate your sin problem. Ask God to help you change because as a Christian, as someone redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you're no longer enslaved to that sin. So how do you respond when a brother or sister in Christ disagrees with you? When a family member says something that rubs you the wrong way? When a, when a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate irritates you? Are you irritable? Do you have a short fuse? Just because someone irritates you doesn't mean you have an excuse to be irritable. Next, Paul says that love is not resentful. Resentful. Another way that you could say resentful is that it keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't harbor the wrong that someone has done to me. I I could probably preach a whole sermon or or really a series of sermons uh, just on this one description of love because God's word has so much to say about it and because we're often so guilty of failing to love by succeeding at being resentful. Let me just ask a few questions. What what do you do with the sin of another person against you? Do you hold on to it or do you choose not to dwell on it? Do you bring it up as a weapon against that person or do you bury it, knowing that the sword of bitterness is actually very dangerous to the person who wields it? Now, I can't take time in the sermon to say all that could be said or really that I want to say about confession and forgiveness because it's just a deep subject. However, I do want to say that I think bitterness, resentfulness, holding on to past hurts does great damage to the body of Christ and therefore does great damage to our witness to the world around us. I read about natives in a certain country who spent a lot of time fighting with one another and they would hang up items from the ceiling of their huts And those items would remind them of how another person had wronged them so that they wouldn't forget how much they hate that person so that they would keep fighting. I fear that there are some believers who can't walk around their hut without constantly knocking their heads on all the past wrongs they're holding on to. Friends, don't say that you love your church family if you're harboring bitterness towards a brother or sister in Christ. And just to prod a little more, but only with the goal of repentance and sweeter fellowship with God and with one another. Let me just remind you and me that that brother or sister in Christ that we're storing up wrongs against might not simply be someone that we go to the same and attend and are members of the same church with. 
might be somebody who also lives in the same house with us. The next thing we see here about love is this. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at truth. This is not talking about rejoicing when you do something wrong. It's talking about rejoicing when somebody else does something wrong. Perhaps you say, I would never do that. I would never rejoice if somebody else did something wrong. Let me pose a hypothetical situation to you. Let's say that there's a sister in Christ who you already find it very tough to love. And then one day you hear that she got caught in some sort of sin. If your first reaction deep down in the secret places of your heart where no one but you or God can see is, ha, I always knew there was something wrong with her. That doesn't surprise me. Followed by gossiping about her sin and then looking down on her in the future then you're guilty of rejoicing at wrongdoing. Instead, a loving response would be to say, oh no, that breaks my heart that my sister in Christ has fallen into sin. Let me pause to pray for her that she would run to Jesus and find forgiveness and restoration. And then following that up, possibly with a a word of gospel encouragement to her. You see, we can be truthful regarding sin without rejoicing in the sin of others. I think perhaps we might be guiltier of this guiltier of this type of failure than we often think we are. It's not something we think about very often. And then finally, in this passage here, uh, Paul gives this description that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. Now, I'm going to group these together because I think when you join them all together, you you get an overview of the type of love we are to have for one another. Here's, here's, this, here's what Paul's saying, I think. This definition of love. We're, we're patience, we have patience with someone. That's the, that's the bearing all things. And that patience is stemming from a positive predisposition towards that someone. That's believing all things. That means believing the best about that person. And that's rooted in a perspective that takes into account God's promises for the future of that someone. That's the hopes all things part. And that then leads to your perseverance and choosing to continue loving that someone. That's the endures all things. Let me say it another way. Consider for a moment that brother or sister in Christ who is, who is difficult to love. If you love them the right way, God's way, you will be patient in laying aside many wrongs that person does to you as you continually believe the best about that person because you have a sure hope in God's plan for the future of that believer And that's going to lead you to press onward and continue love for that brother or sister in Christ. It's really an absolutely beautiful picture. Picture of genuine love. So that's God's description of the love that we need to adopt there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. But, But here's the thing. Whenever we are confronted with God's standard, we are at the same time confronted with our inability to live up to that standard. Anytime we, we come across God's standard in, in his word, when God says do this and we, we see and know what God says we're to do, at the same time we're confronted with our inability to live up to that standard. In other words, uncovering God's righteous ways exposes our unrighteous ways. So once we begin to wrap our minds around God's description of love, we're then going to need to bow our hearts in humble confession to God for our failure to love. 
Perhaps you're saying as we walk through that, wow, that's great, but I mess up all the time. Guess what? I do too. I do too. And so the second thing we need is this. We need to confess our failure to love. We need to confess our failure to love. Let's be clear about this. A failure to love like God has said we are to love is sin. It's sin. Let's call it sin. When I use the word failure here, I don't mean a failure like like a child learning to ride a bike fails several times, maybe many times before he, he learns how to ride the bike. And that, that kind of failure might lead to a scraped knee or a bruised elbow, but it's not a failure that's going to lead to God's wrath for falling off of a bicycle. I mean here by failure, a failure to live up to God's standard, which can only be described as sin against God, and all sin against God deserves to be punished by God. We cannot brush past our failure to love with excuses like, well, that person is just too hard to love. Or, I just can't help myself when I get angry. That's just my way of dealing with it. Or, that person doesn't deserve to be loved. Or, all I did was make sure he acknowledged all all the good things I've done for him before I apologized for that one wrong thing I did. Or, or it's not like I murdered her. I just told her like it is. Friend, God's standard of love is perfection. Anything less is sin, and we must confess it to God as sin. And sometimes, especially when the sinful thought has expressed itself in sinful action toward another person, we don't just need to confess to God, but we also need to go to that person and confess to him or to her what we've done and acknowledge that it's wrong. And that we're sorry, genuinely sorry and broken that we did that. But we can't just stop with confession. You see... What we need even more than a, than a willingness to confess our failure to love is for God to love us despite our failure. Our simply confessing it does no good if God has rejected us because we have failed at loving Him. What we need is for God to love us despite our failure. And the good news of the Gospel is that God does. God does love you and God does love me. And He knows all of our shortcomings. You see, this passage does more than just give us a description of how we are to love. It points us to the only one who has ever loved this way. God, who became flesh, who dwelt among us, full of grace and full of truth, full of perfect love toward you and me. So we need to adopt an accurate description of God's love. Of love, that's the love that God, as God defines it. And we need to confess our failure to love. But third, third, and this is so important, we need to turn to Jesus who is perfect in love. If you walk away from this message and from this passage going, wow, I'm not really doing a good job at love, I'm going to have to try harder. You're setting yourself up for just more failure and more disappointment and more discouragement. What we need to do is to turn to Jesus who is perfect in love. Verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 are not just about us and how we are to love. They are about Jesus. They are describing to us God's love for us through Jesus Christ. While we need to adopt this definition of love for our own lives, we first need to see that God is this definition of love. God says in His Word, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is is 
love. Once we see that God is this definition of love, then we need to receive what his love and only his love provides for us. Salvation, forgiveness, and freedom from our inability to love like He's called us to love. Only then, only then, church, will we be ready and able to live in love like this. We cannot give true love to others until we have received true love from God. Again, God's Word says we love because He first loved us. God doesn't love us because we have loved well. We are able to love well because God first loved us. What does God's love look like? It looks like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-7. through It looks like Jesus. Consider Jesus' patience with His disciples who were slow to grasp the spiritual truth that He was entrusting to them. Consider Jesus' kindness to the woman at the well who was a great sinner but whom He loved greatly. Consider Jesus' submission to God's plan for His life when He set His face to go to Jerusalem where He knew that a cross awaited Him instead of being envious of the Father's role or the Spirit's role in salvation. Consider Jesus' refusal to to throw Himself down from the temple roof as, as, uh, as Satan tempted Him to do, which would have provided Him a great opportunity for boasting about His power. It's not what Jesus did. Consider Jesus' humility when he said, let the little children come to me in a culture where those with a following, a great following like him would have arrogantly brushed those children aside as a nuisance. Consider Jesus' interaction with one of his best friends who had just denied even knowing him three times. He was not rude toward Peter, but instead restored Peter into loving fellowship and service in His kingdom. Consider Jesus in the garden, not insisting upon His own way, but submissively crying out with with drops of blood coming from His brow. Father, not my will, but Yours be done. Consider Jesus who, instead of whirling around in a hot temper at the rejected lady who secretly touched His garment and interrupted His journey, Instead, turned around with compassion, ready to heal her instead of condemn her. Consider Jesus' words from the cross. Not storing up the wrongs being done to Him. But instead crying out, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Consider Jesus who, instead of rejoicing at the sin of Israel, spoke with heartfelt anguish, truth and love. When they chose to say, when he, when he chose to say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Consider Jesus' treatment of you and me. We who rebel against Him over and over, saying that we're going to follow Him, but then turn back from following Him. Promising to obey Him, but then choosing to disobey Him. Consider how He treats us 
We are recipients of his certain promises to bear with us when we fail, to remind us of our redemption when we doubt, to set our hopes on, uh, excuse me, our eyes on the hope of heaven when we wander and to endure with us to the end. Even when we want to give up. Consider Jesus, church. Consider Jesus loving like we've never been able to love, dying the death that we deserve to die, giving us the righteousness we could never attain, filling us with his spirit to give us the power we need to love like him. You see, church, if we're ever going to love one another according to God's standard, according to his definition and description of love, then we need to turn to Jesus, who is perfect in love. And out of His perfect love for us flows the two things that we desperately need in order to love like Him. Forgiveness and enablement. Forgiveness and enablement. We need Jesus to forgive us from our failure to love like Him. I mean, we desperately need that. In other words, we need to be forgiven of our sin. Our failure to love like Him. And only the love of God displayed on the cross of Christ can provide that forgiveness. Only the death of Jesus satisfies God's wrath toward our failure to love according to his standard of love. Secondly, we need Jesus to enable us to love like him. We can't do it without his help. And that's exactly what he has done through coming to this earth to redeem us and rescue us. We need new hearts, hearts that are not corrupted by sin, hearts that are not enslaved to sin, hearts that are not hardened toward the ways of God. And at the cross, Jesus defeated sin for us. He died to take away our sin and he rose to give us new life in him. He cleanses our heart by hearts by his blood and he sets us free from sin to live in holiness. He empties our hearts of our sinful depravity and he fills us with his spirit who enables us to love like we've never loved before. To love like Jesus. Listen, listen, friends, listen, church. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, any attempt to love like Jesus apart from Jesus is like trying to get to the moon by flapping your arms. It's pointless. It's useless. It's futile. We cannot do it without Him forgiving us and enabling us. We can't be who God has called us to be without God enabling us, empowering us, and changing us As only He can, and it is through our faith in Jesus, our turning to Jesus, that He gives us this grace. And so we must turn to Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus today, you need to turn to Jesus for the very first time. If you are burdened by the guilt and weight of your sin, and you know that that you are not forgiven by God, and God's wrath is upon you, then you need to turn to Jesus by trusting in what He did on the cross as sufficient payment for your sin. But even us as believers, we got to turn to Jesus each and every day. It doesn't mean that we have to get saved again each and every day. It just means that we have to redirect our focus onto Christ each and every day because the world pulls us away from Christ constantly. But if we're going to love like Jesus loved, we've got to keep going back to the cross, resting in the, in the forgiveness that God has graciously given us, and then trusting in His empower, empowerment and His enablement to give us the ability to do what He's called us to do. Church, we have a mission. 
In the coming weeks, we're going to be learning what it looks like to be a disciple maker. We'll be learning what it looks like to live on mission as it pertains to helping other believers grow in their faith. And I'm excited about looking at that and kind of unpacking some of the things that go into being a disciple maker. But we've got to remember that love for one another is vital in accomplishing that mission. So let me ask you a question. Let's bring it back to where we're at right now in in 2020. What does it look like for us to love one another during this time? Are you growing impatient as you wait for others to join you in your opinion concerning this virus? God says love is patient. Are you thinking hateful thoughts about someone with whom you disagree concerning the right steps forward? When it comes to this crisis, God says love is kind. Are you wishing you had that person's job or that person's home or that person's family or that person's church or that person's school or that person's teacher? Because they just seem to be responding so much better than mine during this time. God says love does not envy. Are you bragging that your opinion about this pandemic from the beginning is now proving to be true? God says love does not boast. Are you looking down on those who seem to get swept away with false information and you don't think you ever do? God says love is not arrogant. Are you saying rude things about those who are responding to this virus differently than you are? Whether to their face or behind their backs or on social media? God says love is not rude. Are you being bullheaded and in Insisting that you are right and everyone else needs to listen to you about the right course of action. God says that love does not insist on its own way. Are you getting frustrated with people who seem to be taking this virus too seriously? Or with those who seem to be not taking it seriously enough? God says that love is not irritable. Are you beginning to store up evil thoughts Uh, about someone who seems to constantly disagree with you, who is treating you in an unloving manner? Are you storing those things up? God says that love is not resentful. Are you excited? Are you excited when new and helpful information comes out about our current crisis that supports your opinion simply Because it proves that the person with whom you disagree has been wrong and now looks foolish. God says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Are you ready to just throw in the towel with someone who seems impossible to love during this time? Even a brother or sister in Christ? God says... That love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so church, if we are not loving one another well, please know this. We will never attract the lost to Jesus. Nor will we be able to help the found, those who are saved, grow in their relationship with Jesus. Love is at the core of the mission. 
If we want to point others to the one whose love is perfect, then we must be seeking to imitate his love for us in the way that we love one another. And if we want to imitate the love of Jesus, then we must be redeemed by the love of Jesus and filled with the abiding presence of Jesus through his Holy Spirit in us. So. Just what's on my heart is this. Let's commit to loving one another. We have a mission that both transcends this current crisis and that teaches us how to live in the midst of this crisis. It transcends all of our opinions that we may have. It's the call to love. It's God's call to love. Love one another well. We make disciples by first being faithful disciples. And church, faithful disciples are committed to loving one another. We love for the cause of Christ. We love for the mission that He has called us to. We love for the eternal glory that comes With people from every nation standing around the throne, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. The world will know that we are His disciples by the way that we love one another. Would you pray with me? Father, I confess my failure to love. Father, I confess that sometimes my definition of love gets skewed by the world's definition of love instead of being centered and fixed on Your definition of love. God, I confess that sometimes even when I know what true love is, I don't always practice it. Father, I thank You for this definition of love that You have given us, this beautiful passage of Scripture. Father, help us to adopt this definition as the way that we're going to love one another. But Father, we're hit in the face with the fact that we fail to love this way so often. And so help us to quickly confess our failure to, to You. But Father, all of, all of that is in vain if we don't turn to Jesus, the One who has loved us perfectly. And so Father, we thank You for the love that You have shown us in sending Your only Son. Father, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, You showed Your own love for us, Lord, in sending that that precious Son of Yours to to go to Calvary's cross, to, to bear our sin, and then to bear with us in love, to endure with us to the end, to keep us, to watch over us, even when we continue to stray, Father, Your love remains the same in our lives, and it carries us to the end. Father, may we, may we rest in that forgiveness And then may we live through that enablement that Your Spirit works in us to love others with that same kind of love, bearing with them, being patient and kind. Father, not harboring bitterness. Father, Father, choosing to to not blow up in anger. Father, choosing to believe the best about others. And to look into the future of our brothers and sisters in Christ and see what You see. 
Your love engulfing them for all of eternity. Father, may that drive us to love them like You love us. Father, help us to love one another well so we can love the world well. For the cause of Christ. For the sake of the mission. The glory of You, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.